Hi, friends. Welcome back to Nate Talks to his friends about Jesus. Dude, I hope the sun is shining on your life. How good is springtime? Mmm, good to hang out with you today. Um, hey, just a reminder, as you all know, this is the Garage Band of Come Follow Me podcasts, and it will always be. But if this is good for your life, um, just share it with somebody, man. Spread the goodness. I don't know how you do this. I barely know how I do it myself. So, um, But just word of mouth, spread it out, and, and just share the love of Jesus Christ if this is something that, that helps you out that way. Anyways, last time we talked about how God gave us a training program in order to connect with him and be transformed through the grace of his son. Remember, if the commandments are not pointing us to Jesus Christ, it is self-idolatry. If they can point us towards his love, his grace, and a connection to divinity, that's when what works. Well, we, we see this invitation reiterated in the beginning of our section we're looking at this week. In Exodus 24, verse 1, it says, Come up unto the Lord. But the thing is, we're not quite there yet. We're not quite ready to come up into the presence of the Lord. We make choices that make us unclean, and no unclean thing can enter the presence of the Lord. Not because he's mad at us. It's just because in that state, our unfinished essences just aren't built to withstand the kind of forces that God would put upon us there. So God comes up with a solution. If we can't come up to him, he says, Make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. Oh, this is beautiful. This is the temple. Ah, the temple. This is good stuff. And he says, according to all that I will show you after the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all the instruments thereof, even so you shall make it. So then God sets out with a a do-it-yourself DIY instruction blog for how to make this tabernacle, this temple, this sanctuary where we can come into his presence. And when you read it, it really is like a a step-by-step do-it-yourself instruction blog. Man, honestly, it's worse than that because there's not even the the pictures here. It's like reading an instruction manual without pictures to put together a bunk bed. It is that detailed and it's that boring. Speed read read these sections if you're going to read them at all. So like it tells them how they're to build the outer walls to specific dimensions and with a particular color scheme and... Um, then after they, they build this, the outside to the exacting standards, then on the inside there to place a, a table for shoe bread, candlestick with branches, flowers and bowls like almonds. They're to make a veil and an altar for sacrifice and a laver of brass to wash. And, and so with all of this stuff, don't lose sight with the stuff that the point is to come up unto the Lord. And the last time people or men and women walked openly with God was in the Garden of Eden. Therefore, much of the interior of the tabernacle is designed by God to evoke ideas of a garden setting. It's to put you into a metaphorical Garden of Eden, to draw your mind to the Garden of Eden. And it does this by by having a lot of the interior of the tabernacle built with wood and the, the subsequent temple of uh, of Solomon is built almost exclusively of cedar wood to give that that natural feel, that woods forest feel. And the, the wood itself is carved to look like leaves and flowers. It's all there in the instruction manual if you want to go through there and fruit, all to remind you of the garden. Even the candlestick is, is formed so that it has branches and bowls and flowers to, to model the tree of life. 
Uh, heck, they have cherubim that are, that are placed over the, the mercy seat. And the only other place that cherubim are mentioned in the Bible is in the Garden of Eden. There's supposed to be depictions of animals like a garden setting, like the 12 oxen carrying the laver. And uh, then you have the ark, which contains the laws in the Holy of Holies, which is supposed to be like the, the knowledge of the tree of knowledge of good and evil that will lead you to, to wisdom, right? Now, even though there's a ton of very intricate instructions, this is not just a tent assembly competition. It's not an interior design workshop. It's an invitation for real broken people to enter into a communion with Christ by coming into the, the, this sacred space. So on that front, there's also instruction for how the, the people who are going to be in the temple, how they are to dress and what they are to do when they get there. Now, if you want a different approach to this same topic, this same section of scriptures, we did a deep dive on these Exodus scriptures when we covered Doctrine and Covenants 84. So if you want a different look at this, you can go back and review that podcast. It'll, it'll approach this from a little bit different view. Anyway, talking about the people going into the temple. First, God tells them what they are to wear in the temple. It says in 28, And take thou unto thee Aaron thy brother and his sons with him, from among the children of Israel, that he may minister unto me in the priest's office. And thou shalt make holy garments for Aaron to consecrate him that he may minister unto me in the priest's office. And these are the garments which uh, they shall make, linen breeches to cover their nakedness from the loins even to the thighs, a breastplate. And on that breastplate, you'll have a setting of stones, even four rows of stones, the first row, and it has all the list of stones. I don't even know if it matters, but sardius, topaz, carbuncle, emerald, sapphire, diamond, ligore, whatever that is. I'm sure I'm not saying that right. Agate, amethyst, beryl, onyx, jasper, all set in gold. And on the stones on this breastplate, um, you'll write the names of the children of Israel. When I read this, it reminded me of something that God says in Doctrine and Covenants section 101. Yet I'll own them, and they shall be mine in that day when I shall come to make up my jewels. The idea that this breastplate has the jewels with the names of the children of Israel written on it, kind of this cool symbol, how we come into a communion with God, how he wants to own us in this place, how we become part of his family. And Aaron shall bear the names of the children of Israel in the breastplate of judgment upon his heart when he goes into the holy place for a memorial before the Lord continually. So it's kind of cool, like, in this setting that you are going to be before the Lord continually, your names remembered before him. He also instructs them to have an ephod, which is kind of a sleeveless garment, and then a robe, and, um, and then a mitre. And again, I might be botching that pronunciation, but a mitre is basically a head covering, um, a turban. My neighbor calls it like a baker's hat. And then you have a girdle, kind of a belt-looking thing. And then beneath that, the hem of the robe, you're going to have an embroidery of pomegranates and then bells of gold between them round about. And thou shalt make a plate of pure gold and grave upon it the engravings of a signet, kind of a crown that says holiness unto the Lord. So if you paid attention to this description as you go through it, you'll notice that it's very similar, not exactly similar, but very similar to what you wear today in the temple. White underclothing, uh, uh, a robe, 
an apron, a sash, and a cap. You're missing the breastplate and the, the crown, but on all in all, very similar. So that's what they're to wear in the temple, but what are they, what are they going to do in this temple? Chapter 29. And Aaron and his sons thou shalt bring unto the door of the tabernacle of the congregation, and thou shalt wash them with water. It should be familiar to those of you who are endowed, is used um, in the initiatory in the same way now. And thou shalt take the garment and put upon Aaron the coat and the robe of the ephod and the ephod and the breastplate and gird himself with the curious girdle of the ephod. And thou shalt put the mitre upon his head and put the holy crown upon the mitre. And thou shalt take uh, the anointing oil and pour it upon his head and anoint him. So, uh, what are they to do? They're going to be washed, and then they're going to be clothed. You'll notice that in our clothing, we have the mitre or the cap, but we don't have the crown. We're, we're prepared to become crowned in the future, but have not yet been crowned. Uh, and then after you are washed and clothed, then you're anointed with oil. Now, in um, the Old Testament, people are anointed for two reasons. Number one, to become a priest to God, and number two, to become a king in God's kingdom. The same holds true today. You are anointed to become priests and priestesses, kings and queens. It is one of the coolest rituals available to lock you in on this connection of your true identity as children of God. Then, what they do next, once they're uh, ready, once they're washed, anointed, and clothed, then they start administering ordinances in there. Uh, 29 talks about thou shalt cause a bullock or a bull or a cow to be brought before the tabernacle of the congregation and Aaron and his sons shall put their hands upon the head of the bullock and thou shalt kill the bullock before the Lord by the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. A sin offering for atonement. This word atonement in English is actually a word that William Tyndale invents when he translates the, the Bible. It's just a, this uh, uh, mashing together of the words at one mint, meaning that it is through this sacrifice that people are brought into a communion with God. They're brought at one with God. Uh, and so it's through all the, the symbolism, the clothes and the furniture, it, it's all brought together to remind you of the, the great sacrifice of the Son of God that allows us to come openly and unabashedly into the presence of God, not because of what we have done, but because of the blood of Jesus, which was shed for us. And so um, in this temple, there is a place called the Holy of Holies. It's the innermost chamber. And in this innermost chamber, God says, that uh, this is where thou shalt put the mercy seat. Notice the title of this seat, this throne, the mercy seat. And you place it above the ark, and the ark contains uh, the testimony that I shall give you, the law. So the, this ark is a chest where the stones of the covenant were written. This, this covenant where, where God says, um, this is how you come and communion with me. The recipe book, the knowledge for communion, right? The pattern of life that God lives. And, and above the throne, above the chest is the throne, the mercy seat. And it is quite literally the expectation that this is where God's presence will come, that God will come and sit on this throne to dwell and rule among his people, that this is where God is going to rule his world and his reorganized earth when he comes to rule and reign again. And tell me you don't love this. The place where God sits is called the mercy seat. That's beautiful.
And here's what God says. And at the mercy seat, there I will meet with thee, and I will commune with thee from above the mercy seat. Then he goes on, and there I will meet with the children of Israel, and the tabernacle shall be sanctified by my glory. And I will sanctify the tabernacle of the congregation and the altar, and I will sanctify also both Aaron and his sons to minister to me in the priest's office. And I will dwell among the children of Israel, and I will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God, that brought them forth out of the land of Egypt, that I may dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. Man, that is jam-packed. If you haven't been to the temple in a while, go to the temple. If you need to qualify, qualify. If you've been regularly, go with fresh eyes. Listen to what he's saying, that God's presence there sanctifies the building, but also will sanctify you when you go. That you will be be transformed in this presence. That you will be able to feel the presence of God more strongly in your life in this communion. And that you will be reminded that it is not because of you, but because of him that you are rescued and that he does rule here and that he is the Lord your God. He is the one really in charge. Honestly, this is the gospel. This is the covenant. I will be your God. I will dwell among you. And then he says, here's what I ask of you in return for me coming and blessing you, sanctifying you, transforming you. He says in chapter 31, verse 13, Verily my Sabbaths ye shall keep, for it is a sign between me and you throughout your generations. Why? He says, as you keep the Sabbaths, as you remember God, you will come to know that I am the Lord that doth sanctify you. Not for me, but for you, so that, so that you can be changed by this association. When we keep the Sabbath day, when we go to the temple, when we connect with God, we're transformed by God. Wherefore, the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath to observe the Sabbath throughout their generations for a perpetual covenant. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. For in six days, the Lord made heaven and earth. On the seventh day, he rested and was refreshed. The temple and the Sabbath day form this pattern of refreshment here, right? And so after all of this commanding um, the creation of the temple, this place of communion, then God give, uh, gave unto Moses uh, when he had made an end of communing, communing with him upon the Mount Sinai, two tables of testimony, tables of stone written with the finger of God, So basically, God wraps up the instruction process on how to commune with him in his temple, how to connect with him truly, and and he gives them something tangible to take back to Israel so they can connect with God, this tangible reminder, this tangible instruction template. But meanwhile, at the bottom of the the mountain, while, while Moses is up there getting all this cool instruction on how to build a temple and commune with God, the, the people, well, they act like this. Chapter 32. The people saw that Moses delayed to come down out of the mount. So the people gathered themselves together unto Aaron and said unto Aaron, Up, make us gods. For as for this Moses, the man that brought us up out of the land of Egypt, 
we wot not what has become of him. That's a weird thing. They're like Moses is up there getting a, a plan for how they can enter into the presence of God. They see the glory and presence of God. It's made them frightened before. And, but they're like, uh, I don't know when he's coming back, so let's make another God. And Aaron, I don't know what he's thinking, but Aaron says unto them in return, Break off the golden earrings which are in the ears of your wives and your sons and your daughters and bring them unto me. Like, time out. On what planet are you like, oh yeah, make us other gods? That sounds like a great idea. Like, it's so clearly stupid. But in part, that's what makes it such a great illustration of God's ongoing relationship with us. Now, you can be critical of them, or you can take a step back and look at all the times God is just shaking his head, looking at you, asking, really? Like, I'm sincerely wondering, were you dropped on your head as a child, son? Like, do your mental faculties function normally? I'm for real curious. Like, all of us have been inconsistent, and all of us, God has been like, Dadoi, what are you thinking? And the people break off the golden earrings, which were in the ears, and brought them unto Aaron. And Aaron received them at their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool. He carves it after he had made it into a molten calf and said, These be thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. And when Aaron saw it, he built an altar before the molten calf. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow is a feast day to the Lord. And they rose up early in the morrow, and they offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and to drink and rose up to play. Well, while that's going on, God said unto Moses, Go, get thee down. For thy people, which thou broughtest out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them. They have made them a molten calf and have worshipped it and have sacrificed thereunto. Moses is just like, what the heck? (laughs) God's basically like, Moses, these people are morons. Let's just torch it all and start over. These are stiff-necked people. Um, He's like, God says, my wrath is waxed hot against them. He's like, I want to consume them. He's just, are you for real? Why are you the way you are? Like, you can sense just the deep frustration with God. My anger is waxed hot against them that I may consume them. Like, Like, he's deeply frustrated with this. And I think this is the, the way God feels at our own stubborn waywardness. All of us. This is the root trouble on earth. God is offering us freedom, light, joy, and happiness by communing and connecting with him, a way out through faith. But we try all the time to substitute other things for God in our life. Now, it may not be a golden calf, but it may be golden. It can be Things we own, it can be TV, social media, it could be a job, a relationship, a love interest, sex, pleasure, power. We make fake gods all the time. Cheap, tawdry imitations. And it's frustrating and hurtful to God. He's in a full-blown loyal marriage relationship with us. He is all in. But we cheat on him and dismiss him all the time. 
That, that's part of the reason why he uses such graphic language when he talks about our cheating on him. Like in Exodus 34, he says, and thou shalt worship no other God, lest thou make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land and they go a whoring after their gods and do sacrifice unto their gods. And one call thee and thou eat of the sacrifice and thou take of the, their daughters unto thy sons and their daughters go a whoring after their gods and make thy sons go whoring after other gods. Like, that is really graphic language, but you can see, like, this is real. Like, you cannot dismiss this. As much as we talk about God's love and mercy, which is concrete and real, and I have experienced, you are, you are not damned. Jesus has already saved you. But that is, you cannot be careless with this relationship or flippant with it. This is big time. But as God's like, let's just, let's just be done with this. Moses pleads with God to have mercy on these people, not based on their worthiness, because that's non-existent, but because of God's own loving kindness and his long suffering. He says, remember Abraham, remember Isaac and Israel, thy servants. You promised, you swore by thine own self and said unto them, I will multiply your seed as the stars of the heaven. And all this land that I have spoken of, I will give unto your seed and they shall inherit it forever. And so because of this prayer, the Lord relented and did not bring unto his people the disaster he threatened. Moses turned and he went down from the mount and the two tables of testimony were in his hand. This recipe for connection with divine power. And the tables were written on both sides. So this is a lot of stuff. And on the one side and on the other were they written. And the tables were the work of God. And the writing was the writing of God graven upon the tables. And it came to pass that as soon as Moses came nigh into the camp, he saw the calf and the dancing. And Moses' anger waxes hot. And he cast the tables out of his hands and break them beneath the mount. You see Moses reflecting some of God's disgust and anger here. Now, according to the Joseph Smith translation of the Bible, when he smashes the tables, he also smashes the the Melchizedek priesthood ordinances of the holy order, the words of the everlasting covenant of the priesthood. In other words, the words of the endowment and sealing. And once these are smashed, they don't make a comeback till Joseph Smith and Nauvoo. And then Moses, in a, in a storm of rage, takes the calf which they had made and burnt it in the fire, then grinds it into powder, puts it in water, and makes the children of Israel drink on it. And he's like, this is the bitterness right here. This is what sin is like. Taste the bitterness. Like, that's graphic. And, and then Moses says to Aaron, what are you doing? Okay, he doesn't say that. He said, what did this people unto thee that thou hast brought this great sin on them? He's like, you made this golden calf, Aaron. What's your deal? And Aaron says this, let not the anger of my Lord, meaning Moses, wax hot. He's like, don't be mad at me. Thou knowest the people and that they are set on mission. If you, you know what these people are like, how they're always getting up to things. They said unto me, make us gods which shall go before us. For as this Moses, the man that brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we wot not what is become of him. 
And I said unto them, this is Aaron still, Whosoever hath any gold, let them break it off. So they gave it me, and I cast it in the fire, and then there came out this calf. Dude, hilarious. He, Aaron is saying, like, the, the people are mischievous, and they're, like, the problem here. I just took their gold, and I put it into the fire, and, uh, like, out popped the cow. Uh, what about the whole graving tool that you had in your hand? Come on, man. No one. I mean, no one believes this lie that Aaron's putting down. This is like a four-year-old level lie. Sin straight up makes you stupid. And when the Moses sees this stupidity right here, when he sees how this has just exposed them to Satan and sin, he goes to the camp and he yells out, Who's on the Lord's side? Let him come unto me. He's like, who's really wants to stand for God? And then there are, there are consequences for the most serious offenders, but somehow not for Aaron. Shoulder shrug. I have no idea here. Why not him? And, and for those that remain, there are still some real consequences because God does not trust them um, and is disinclined to help them. The Lord said unto Moses, depart and go up thence. Thou and thy people, which thou hast brought up out of the land, for I will not go up in the midst of thee, for thou art a stiff-necked people. But Moses is like, please, please, I pray thee, if I have found grace in thy sight, show me now the way that I may know thee. Show me the way that I may know thee. That's a great line. That I may find grace in thy sight and consider that this nation is thy people. And again, another time, our merciful God relents, not because they are good, they suck, but because he is good. And that's the message, man. You're going to botch it, man. You're going to botch it this week. You're going to say angry words. You're going to think stupid thoughts. You're going to botch it. But God is good. And you can trust in his mercy, in his mercy seat. So he relents and he said, my presence shall go with thee. And I'll give thee rest. And the Lord said unto Moses, Hew thee two stone table, tables of stone like unto the first. And I will write, write upon these tables the words that were on the first which thou breakest. And the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful, gracious, long-suffering, and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Then the Lord said, I am making a covenant with you before all your people. I will do wonders never before done in any nation of the world. The people you live among will see how awesome is the work, of, the work that I, the Lord, will do for you. And in all of this, the Lord spake to Moses face to face as a man speaketh unto his friend. That's some beautiful stuff right there. And it came to pass that when Moses came down from the Mount Sinai with the two tables of testimony in Moses' hand, when he came down from the Mount, that Moses wist not, uh, that, the, uh, not that the skin of his face shone while he talked with him. It's just crazy. Like after being with God, after communing with him, he's transformed. So after Moses comes down for the second time, 
and well, the, I guess technically this is like the third or fourth time, but he comes down and he tells them that even though they messed up, God still wants to connect with them. So the next step then is to build this temple, this tabernacle, so that they can make this connection complete. And so the people repent and they're all in. And Moses says, Whosoever is of a willing heart, let him bring it, uh, an offering to the Lord, an offering of gold and silver and brass, so that we can fund the construction of this tabernacle. And so with that willingness of heart, they start it. And as they start the construction, God says he has already prepared a way to make this construction happen. He says, see, I, I have called by name Bezalel. And this is an individual that lives in Israel. And I have filled Bezalel, a weird name, and I'm probably botching it again. But I filled Bezalel with the spirit of God in wisdom and understanding and in knowledge and in all manner of workmanship to devise cunning works. Notice what he says here. Bezalel is going to be the foreman of the construction here. And God says he's filled him with the spirit of God. Now, usually when we talk about being filled with the Spirit of God, we're talking about a sensation of peace or confirmation or a skill to teach. He's saying being filled with the Spirit of God, Bezalel has a capacity to understand how to construct things with his hands, design things and build things. Um, That's really cool. So under Bezalel's skillful direction, they carefully begin to craft the tabernacle. Now, Now, this is just a side note to our overall point. But let's make this point really clear. God has given you a purpose here on this earth. He placed you where he placed you for a reason. He gave you your interests and your talents in the areas you have them for a reason. And we're not just talking about spiritual things. We're talking about your skills at work, your your intelligence, your love of sports, all of those things. Trust that God knows what he's doing and then use those for good. God is saying that these are gifts of the Spirit, the wisdom and understanding and knowledge and the manner to work. That's cool. Trust that that God God has a a purpose for placing you where you are with the interests you have and then move forward with them. Following this, uh, we get one of those like fast motion building montages. You can just insert it mentally here. Hammer, 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 carve, 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 sew some stuff, etc., and thus all the work of the temple, tabernacle of the tent of the congregation was finished. And on the first day of the first month, kind of this new beginning, they set up the tabernacle. And Moses finished the work. And it works. God comes down. A cloud covers the tent of the congregation and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter into the tent of the congregation. What? All that work. uh, They they did everything they were supposed to do to get into God's presence and they, they can't get in? What's going on here? Well, see, they have damaged their relationship with God. Their actions have made them incapable of being in the presence of God. It's not that God is angry and he's like, get out of here. It's the fact that they, they are in a state that is incomplete. It's in a state that can't handle God. And that's where the book ends. 
The tabernacle's built, God is there, and they can't get in. Dang! Talk about a cliffhanger. Well, tune in next week to find out if they make it. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.